In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Some Bond fans don't like the underwater scenes, but I got to tell you, and then when you get to the end and you get that great underwater fight between the orange suits and the black suits, there was never ever anything like that film before. That was brand new in pop culture entertainment. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain access to premium episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads.
Secrets. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Pop culture historian, award-winning comic book style illustrator Arlen Schumer is here with part four of our four-part series on the canon of Sean Connery and James Bond. On this episode, the fourth film in the James Bond film franchise, 1965's Thunderball. Hey, Arlen, welcome back. Hey, Richard. It's always great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. So the fourth and final installment in the Sean Connery-James Bond canon Yes. series. How can people watch the webinar? Well, I always post because they're free. I always post information on my website's events blog, uh, which you can see right when you go to my homepage, arlenschumer.com. And on my events blog, I always post every event, webinar, lecture that I do with the contact info. And I usually post it uh a couple days before the event. So my Thunderball webinar is going to be June 23rd. So that's a Wednesday. Definitely by that Monday, the 21st, it'll be posted on my events blog. Right. And people, you know, it's it's cool to watch it live, but if they happen to miss it live. Right. Then eventually I get it edited and the video is posted on either my YouTube channel or my Vimeo channel, depending on copyright issues. I think the Bond webinars I've been doing are all on my Vimeo channel. And it's easy to find me because I don't hide behind pseudonyms. You know, if you just put in Arlen Schumer, you'll find my Vimeo channel. Obviously, everything is linked from my website. You can get to my Vimeo channel, my YouTube channel, all that, you can get my whole life from my website. Right. And if they go to the episode notes for this podcast and just click on Arlen Schumer, that hyperlinks right to your website. Beautiful. Uh, all right. So we've, uh, in the past, we've talked about uh, Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, and tonight, the fourth film in the James Bond, Sean Connery canon, Thunderball, 1965. Now, uh, this is the last film that Terrence Young directs, correct? Well, you know, before we even get to that, Richard, I was just thinking about your audience listening in. If they're listening for the first time, I just want to clarify right up front 
why I call the first four films sure. the canon and not any of the others. Good idea. And my reason being is that I think the first four films are not only the four greatest Connery Bond films, and I think the four greatest Bond films in general, but as the first four films, they are the only four films to have a single creative crew with the exception of a couple of minor players. And what I mean by that is three of the first four films are directed by Terrence Young. Goldfinger directed by um, uh, a, a guy, uh, Hamilton, I believe was just, he inherited the same creative crew that Terrence Young had for the first three films. The same screenwriter, Richard Maybaum, the same director of photography, Ted Moore, the same editor, which is so crucial, Peter Hunt, whose editing made the Bond films have that crackling energy that separates them from films from the 1950s. But once you get to You Only Live Twice in 1967, the creative crew changes. Different director, different screenwriter, different director of photography. To me, the break between the first four films and You Only Live Twice, which is where I feel that Bond jumps the shark. So for those, and, and the first four films not only have the same creative crew, but they each have some flaws in them, but they each have something unique to each of those four films that I can't myself pick any one to be greater than the other of those first four. So I call it the canon, you know, with an allusion to the New Testament that the four books right. were like the four corners of the globe, north, south, east, west. The first four films are to me the Sean Connery, James Bond canon. And that's what I attempt to do in these webinars where I show behind the scenes footage, stills, the greatest hits of the film itself. So they're like, they're almost the length of each film, about two hours, the webinars. And you'll feel like you've seen the film, even though I haven't shown you the whole film. I've shown you, in a sense, its greatest hits, as well as behind the scenes, images and information that for the average Bond fan, not the aficionado, but the average Bond fan, their minds will be blown by coming or watching any of these webinars. And even if you think you know those first four films, I guarantee you coming to my webinars or watching them on video will make you see them in a whole new light. Right. So before we get into discussing the plot and the cast and so forth, I want to address the, what do we call it? The Thunderball controversy, because this was, uh, I believe it was supposed to originally have been the first Bond film because the book came out around 61. It was supposed to be the first Bond film. And then there was some, some well, legal issue. Okay. Uh, so explain, explain what okay. that controversy was. Okay. So Fleming starts writing the Bond novels in 1952, uh, Casino Royale, and it gets published in 53, I think. 
from that point on, he writes a Bond book a year. I think Live and Let Die was number two. Here, I got him right in front of me. Yeah, Live and Let Die was number two. Moonraker was the third. Diamonds are Forever. From Rush with Love, we're up to like 1957. Dr. No is 58. Goldfinger, 59. For Your Eyes Only, 1960. And then Thunderball comes out in 61. 61 is the same year that Saltzman and Broccoli, the producers, signed their deal with Ian Fleming to do the Bond film. So at that point, Thunderball was meant originally as a screenplay that Fleming, people were trying to buy the rights to the Bond films. You know, the first televised version of Bond was 1954 in America, an adaptation of Casino Royale. Right, right. So all during the late 50s, people were jockeying for the film rights. And I think the story goes that Fleming got involved with this guy, Kevin McClowry, and Jack Whittingham, and they together collaborated on Thunderball, the story, and Fleming was to write the screenplay, or maybe Jack Whittingham was to write the screenplay. Again, I don't, the, the exact details are for right. real Bond Super Aficionado, but suffice it to say, the deal fell through to make a movie called Thunderball. So, what Fleming does is sort of disregard any legal or creative consideration to Whittingham McClary, and he writes up Thunderball and publishes it in 1961 as a novel. Right, based on the, the, the screenplay. Right. The problem is that, that the minute McClary and Whittingham saw the book, they were like, hold on a second. That's also our idea. So I think, I think Broccoli and Saltzman, I don't know if they wanted to do Thunderball right away, but they chose Dr. No, I think for the simplicity of the budget, that they could just go to one site, Jamaica, film those scenes, do everything else with Pinewood. Right, right. Whereas Thunderball would have been more exotic and more money or whatever, I think. Sure. But but the point is, is it immediately entered into litigation. Um, and that's why, the, you know, they end up making Dr. No. And then from Rush with Love, because John Kennedy mentioned it in a 1962 article, while they're making Dr. No, he says, oh, yeah, uh, from Rush with Love is one of my favorite books. Next thing you know, because I think they were going to do, were they going to do Goldfinger second? Or they were, no, they were going to do, I think the way the books went um, after From Rush, no, see, they did Dr. No out of order. So they they put in From Rush with Love. Yeah, I'm not sure what they would have done instead, but then whatever the legal things worked their way out and after Goldfinger, I guess that's when the legal uh, log jam broke Right. And they were able to make Thunderball as a movie, but McClary was credited as producer along with Saltzman and Broccoli. And, well, you see, it's weird. It's like I'm looking at my own thing here. 
you know, based on an original story. You know, the credits to Thunderball are very interesting. But it basically says, you know, produced by Clevin, Kevin McClowry from a story by uh, Jack Whittingham. Wait, what does it right. say? Hold on. So maybe to appease. Yeah, ba- oh, that's it. Based on an original screenplay by Jack Whittingham. So Whittingham gets credit on the screenplay and McClowry gets credit as sole producer. Although it does say Saltzman and Broccoli present. So I guess there were basically three producers on the movie, but McClowry gets a separate credit, which is why he owned a certain amount of rights. He was able to remake Thunderball in 1983 as Never Say Never Again. Right, which was not a Broccoli Saltzman. Right, because McClowry retained the rights to make a remake if he ever wanted to. All right. Interesting. Interesting little uh, bit of But basically, it feels no different, once again. It's the same creative crew as three of the first four films. And, um, you know, McClowry being producer uh, doesn't have, like I said, it feels like consistent with the other two Terrence Young films. Right. Okay. So in terms of the plot, you know, it doesn't really deviate too much from sort of the, the Ian Fleming spy thriller. In this case, right. you've got some nuclear bombs that are basically right. hijacked from NATO during a training exercise. Very timely with the early 60s and the Cold War, of course. Right, right. What was interesting here is that the, I guess, one of the, uh, the, uh, the pilots the um, specter hires an assassin, but first they make, they do kind of a surgical uh, yes. plastic yes. surgery on yes. one of the, uh, the, the, very the villains. Pre, very pre-Mission Impossible. Yes. You know, Mission Impossible made their whole shtick on the duplicates, but, you know, and you know, listen, if you remember, the first pre-Mission Impossible thing is the opening teaser sequence in From Rush With Love where you think Connery's bond has been killed in the very beginning and they pull off the mask and it's just a specter. Nobody. Right. 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 Interesting. You know, that's where mission impossible gets that whole facial thing from. Ah, okay. So they kill this French pilot, but first they replace him with a double. Right. And uh, anyway, um, so just sort of, you know, walk us through the the storyline from there, if you could. Yeah, so basically Spectre hijacks two nuclear bombs and are able to stash them in their secret little base in uh, Nassau in the Bahamas. And they um, charge the Western world, Great Britain and, you know, the NATO powers. Uh, I forget how much money exactly it was in 1965 dollars. It was Um, cute. It was 100 million in diamonds, 100 million pounds in diamonds, which is kind of, you know, when you think about it, not very much. Well, what would that be in in 2021 dollars? Probably, you know, a couple of billion maybe. But well, so for 1965, I guess whatever they chose, I think, you know, when Austin Powers lampooned it, you know, Michael Myers, I think there's a sequence where he's threatening, you know, similar thing, you know, destruction on earth. And they ask him, how much do you want? And I don't know, like one of his lackeys, somebody says like a million dollars. And they're like, only a million dollars? Like, come on, jack it up a little. Yeah. 
But exactly. I'm sure I'm sure for 1965, it had to be a significant amount of money. But basically, right. they hold the and because uh, our our hero, Mr. Bond, was at the same spa, uh, you know, place in Britain where he was recuperating. Um, he's able to suss out this little plot and follow the lead to Nassau, which is where he then goes. So the film starts out, you know, great opening sequence, by the way, with the jet pack, which was a brand new thing in 1965, you know, right. That great. I mean, the three opening sequences starting with from Russia with love goldfinger and thunderball i still think are the three greatest pre-credit sequences in bond history i don't think anybody's ever gotten better than those first three so thunderball completes the trifecta because nobody expected a jetpack you know right right uh, and i was going to say what's interesting about the jetpack and it's only this was only recently pointed out to me. I never realized it kind of came full circle when at the end of the Thunderball, he wears a jetpack underwater. Right. Interesting. I mean, I never connected the two, but that's a beautiful little connection. Right. Right. So uh, a classic villain. He had the classic villain look, Emilio Largo with the eye yes. patch. Yes. An Italian, almost like a mafia don with his, you know, the way he kissed his signet ring. Right. You know, when they throw the lackey into the shark infested pool. Yeah, I think I think Largo is a great, maybe even underrated Bond villain. But I think he holds his own with the very significant villains of the first three films. Dr. No was brilliant. Then you get... Red Grant, you know, the great Robert Shaw and Lottie Lenya as the two great from Russia with Love assassins. Then you get Goldfinger and Odd Job. Yeah. And then when you get to Thunderball, you know, I think Bond aficionados don't quite put um, Adolfo Celli's Largo in that grouping, but I think he holds his own within right. the film. Right. And uh, they didn't have to dub him, right? I mean, they didn't have to. They didn't have to dub Adolfo. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so either. I, I, but he had, from what I understand, he had. Made, I mean, he had made a career like playing basically Italian villains. So this was well, uh, you know, perfect casting because you know maybe he doesn't get the billing because he's not as larger than life. He was a very realistic Bond villain. I mean, he was a rich guy in you know the bahamas that had that groovy yacht but other than that he was basically just a rich villain he he wasn't larger than life he was you know it was almost conceivable that that plot could have actually happened right right he didn't he didn't have metal hands like dr no <laughs> gonna say that you yeah. know he didn't have a on the nose name like goldfinger you know um but you know largo is kind of a cool name um and like I said, he played the role more like, uh, you know, a kind of pre-Godfather type, you know, mobster type. But, you know, like I said, I, I, I think, yeah, he wasn't as larger than life as, the, as maybe the other villains. But just like Robert Shaw was very down to earth, like you felt his 
his reality. Right. You know, right. you knew uh, Red Grant was a real monster of a human being. And that was a great performance. So, yeah, like I said, I, I, I like Largo. And, you know, like I said, may not as be as large than life, but I, he holds his own. Um, what about uh, oh, Claudine Auger, who plays his mistress? Um, Dominique or Domino Durval, Domino. Interesting yes. name because she's I always act- wearing black and white, right? She's right. In black and I white. I actually think she's the one of the weak links of the film. Oh, really? I th- I think she's a very weak Bond. Uh, like I'll take what's her name from From Rush with Love as like a like a, a, a woman, you know. Um, I think Goldfinger's women are more memorable. Uh, I think she's rather plain. I don't find anything particularly interesting about her. I think the villainess was a lot more interesting. Uh, you know, uh, Volpe. Oh, Fiona Volpe. Yeah. Fiona Volpe. I think she was much more interesting. Um, so I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, not that she hurts the film, but I think she's a very bland Bond girl, Claudine Auger. I don't think she did anything in the film memorable at all. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, uh, that's just my take. More of my conversation with Arlen Schumer when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. 
I can't stop talking about the pomegranate super tea from my friends at Get The Tea. They actually changed the name. It used to be known as Formula 13 pomegranate cleansing tea, but this gentle cleansing tea now contains a new stronger formula. All I know is it still tastes great, it's still refreshing, and it still provides me with energy and a sense of well-being. This new blend of tea contains some of the same ingredients as those that are in the Life Change teas, but with added natural pomegranate flavor and stevia to give it a natural, slightly sweetened taste. One pouch of tea contains eight tea bags, enough to last for one month. I brew two gallons at a time and then it steeps in cold water. Into the fridge it goes and that's enough to last for the week. I start my day every day with a 16 ounce cool refreshing glass of this amazing herbal, non-GMO, caffeine-free tea. It provides a daily gentle cleanse that rids my body of any intruders. A healthy gut is the key to a healthy body. So come on board and find out for yourself. The super tea also comes in peppermint. These teas are not available in any store. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Get your tea from getthetea.com. Arlen Schumer is here and we're talking about the fourth James Bond film starring Sean Connery, part of what Arlen calls the Connery Bond canon, Thunderball. So Fiona Volpe, who's the Spectre assassin, she's the one who becomes uh, the pilot, Francois Durval's mistress, so that she can kill him and right. replace him with the uh, the mistress. Right. Um, Luciana Paluzzi. Yes, Luciani Paluzzi. Why, um, any, any little tidbits on her casting, why she was chosen, or what do we know? No, I'm not, uh, that's not where my interests lie. But- okay. You know, the, the Bond people, the producers, you know, think of the first three films. A lot, You know, they picked uh, beauty pageant winners. I think Claudine Auger was Miss France. Right. Um, you know, you know, again, it's like um, you think about any of these Bond women. I mean, can you think of anything else Luciana Paluzzi ever did? I mean, it's like the Bond thing is the kiss of death almost to any actress. I mean, rarely does a Bond woman go on to do other things. I mean, okay, Ursula Andress, sort of. Uh, although, good luck naming her a filmography, you right. know. Um, and so I think it's a bit of a curse. So um, that's why, you know, for me, the you know, Goldfinger, I think, had the strongest lineup of the early films of Bond women, whereas From Russia With Love was really just one you know, Tatiana Romanova. But I liked her because I felt she was not a girl. I felt she was a real woman. Right, right. You know, and I, and again, Ursula Andress was kind of, to me, bland as Honey Rider. Yeah, she was good looking, but I found, um, what's her name? Sylvia Trench, uh, his English girlfriend, much more interesting than uh, Ursula Andress. You know? Yes, yes. Uh, let's see, who else in the cast? Rick Van Nutter as Felix Leiter. He's the CIA agent who helps Bond. He was, to me, the coolest of the early... Um, you know, we all like... What's his name from Hawaii Five O? Jack, Jack Lord. Lord yeah. was the first. Although they gave him barely nothing to do in Dr. No. But he was cool looking, you know, with his early 60s glasses. But then I think Dr. No, there's no, I mean, um, For Much Your Love has no Felix Leiter. Goldfinger, I thought, 
one of the flaws of the film was the goofy Felix Leiter in Goldfinger. And I think uh, Thunderball, at least Rick Van Utter, was kind of cool. Right, right. Um, and Van Nutter, I was looking uh, up because I hadn't really, or I didn't know much about him, but he often played the heavy in movies. He played the villain and he has that kind of that heavy look. Yet here he is playing the See, good I'm guy. actually surprised because I didn't know that. To me, he looks like the good guy type. That's why I thought he made a good Felix Leiter. Oh, so I'm actually, excuse me, I'm surprised. And thank you because I'll add this to my webinar when I do it, you know. I guess it depends on the publicity photo you're looking at, but uh, maybe uh, the one that I saw was from a movie where he played kind of a, a that a shows you that shows you his versatility because a lot of guys are typecast as either good guys or bad guys. Yes, you know it's very rare that you get a great actor that can play both. I think like wasn't Humphrey Bogart a bad guy in like one of his films? But I think so. Everywhere else, he's like a good guy. You know, it's you know. Yeah, there's not a lot of people that can pull only that off. Great, you know, only great actors can play that that range. Yeah, I would say people like uh, Gary Oldham and um, Alan Rickman uh, throughout their careers have played both villains and yes, and uh, well, Alan guy. Rickman redeemed all his villain roles. If you've seen Galaxy Quest, yes. that's his greatest heroic <laughs> role, really. Yes, and because he played a very you know, uh, disillusioned, you know, actor who had seen it all and done all the great things. And here he was stuck on this lousy TV show. Right, right. And, you know, but then in the end, he acts heroically. Yeah. No, it's a wonderful <laughs> film. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you have the uh, the stalwarts. You have the Bernard Lee as M. Yeah. Uh, Desmond Lewis Lois Maxwell. Desmond Lois Llewellyn. Maxwell. Who... Uh, I, I, I only just discovered is a Canadian connection because I'm up here just north of Toronto and Lois Maxwell was, was born in Kitchener, Ontario. Just I down did the not road. know that. I did not know that. And she went to school at Lawrence Park Collegiate here in Toronto. But then what brought her over to England? No, I guess, well, her acting career, I suppose. Was she maybe originally was in the theater? I don't know. Versus not being in America because the story I got, it was that, uh, Terrence Young had cast her in the early 50s in one of his early films or, or wanted to cast her, but maybe she didn't get the role or something. Right. Uh, but he liked her so much that he said, don't worry, I won't forget you. And if something comes up in the future that's right for you, you'll get it. And years later, he calls her for Money Penny. Money Penny, right. But but I think she she was acting in England, so... Again, I'll do some research before I do my webinar and find out what got her, you know, because it's interesting. That's where um, Cubby brought, no, what's his name? Um, Saltzman came from Canada. Ah, right, right. And was an expatriate uh, in England. And Broccoli was from New York, I think. So Money Penny, uh, that, like the first film, there, there isn't really that, that chemistry, that connection, as I recall. No, with, no, with, not with true. Bond. Not no? true. Oh. Oh, right from the start, they have that little repartee in the office. That's one of the first stations of what I call the Bond Cross in the first four films. You know, they have to have those classic right. scenes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a there's the the exchange in the first even the, the uh, four double films. entendres, even the sexual double entendres and all that. 
Well, you're talking about with money, Penny? Yes, and Bond. They didn't yeah. have sexual double entendre, but they they danced around the subject, I think. Right, right. But, you okay. know, my research, when I did Dr. No, I did some research on um, the whole money, Penny, Lois Maxwell thing, and she revealed in some interview that, like, she and Connery had worked out a kind of backstory for the characters that when they were younger, just starting out working for M, they had like a one night stand, like a little fling. Uh, oh, I see. And they quickly decided probably the next day that if they were going to continue working, they couldn't have a relationship. Oh, interesting. So the way they were playful with each other, with the, oh, James, you know, the only gold I know is a ring and, you know, that's yes, yes. all that little playful stuff with that sexual undercurrent is because they once did it when they were younger. Right. They were intimate with each other. It's fictional. But probably only once. Yeah. So when you know that, that's what gives those scenes such great poignancy. And and that's what we love about those early Bond films with Connery and Maxwell. Right. And she was Money Penny for, for a good run, right? Something like for what, 12, 15 films? I don't know. Way into the Warrior, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, I did she... I, I so dislike the Moore films, I don't think I've ever even seen Octopussy. But I don't think she was there for the... Uh, was she, I don't think she was there for the Dalton two films, was she? Not sure. I, th I think she ended with the Moore run. But what again, yeah, right. yeah, I don't really know that detail. Right. Uh, Desmond Llewellyn as Q really now starting to come into his own. Uh, yeah, really you know, with the, starting with, cat, with, with a gadget. So love. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Thunderball had the um, the big gadget was really the jetpack at the end underwater in terms of what Q brings him. The other stuff is really minor stuff. Uh, you know, they saved the jetpack for the end. And to tell you the truth, I think they underused it. You know, yeah, they only had really one scene with it. And then if you remember in the underwater scene at the end, after really only one scene where he rushes past all the die, all the other, you know, combatants underwater, yanks off a mask or something, he basically takes it and uses it as bait and drops it in, you know, one of the wrecks under the sea and draws three of the bad guys into it and blows them up. Right, right. So I really think they underuse it. Okay, well, uh, from underutilization to perhaps, according, you know, the critics say maybe overutilizing some of the underwater scenes. You have some fans who love it, of course. Yes. You have others who say it was repetitive. What do you Well, And that, and that they were slow, and that they were slow. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, I grew up being influenced by things like Sea Hunt, the TV show with Lloyd Bridges. Sure. And in 1964, G.I. Joe came out with an underwater diver. Yep, I had that. And a deep sea diver. I grew up with a children's show called Diver Dan, which was a deep sea diver, but you never saw his face. And he walked and they filmed it as if he was underwater. They mm -hmm. had, you know, fish hanging from monofilament wires. <laughs> and then Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which started the year before in 1964 
was all about underwater. So for me, when Thunderball was going to be about underwater scenes, it was cool as hell because I had already as a kid been entrenched with this great underwater, cool, you know, world kind of thing. You got to remember, right. this is before the first spacewalk in 1965. You know, space at that point was abstract. Yeah, rockets were going up, but the underwater world in pop culture was what was happening, so to speak. Right, right. Star Trek didn't come out till 66. There really weren't a lot of space shows in those early 60s years. There had been the movie Forbidden Planet in 1958. So, you know, like I said, you go from Sea Hunt to G.I. Joe and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Diver Dan in, in that mix. That's a lot of pop culture having to deal with underwater adventure. Right. And right. then, by the way, there was that great Disney film that they used to show uh, on television, 20,000 Leagues Under oh, the Sea. Sure. Which has those great underwater scenes with the frogmen. So underwater in pop culture in the early 60s was still a cool place to be. Right. Well, those And this all is before Jacques Cousteau and all that crap. Right. That came later. Well, um, and then the comic books, The Submariner. Were you a fan? Yeah, well, everybody was. Aquaman. Yeah, so you have superheroes dealing with underwater. So to me, Connery underwater was cool. It was a cool world. Right, right. You know? So, yeah. so yes, some Bond fans don't like the underwater scenes, but I got to tell you, and then when you get to the end, and you get that great underwater fight between the orange suits and the black suits. Right. There was never, ever anything like that film before. That True. was brand new in pop culture entertainment. Right, right. It was the stuff of every kid's fantasy. A giant underwater fight with spear guns. Are you kidding me? Once in a while, somebody would shoot a spear gun underwater, like Creature from the Black Lagoon, you know? And by the way, that's the other thing. People who criticize the underwater scenes in Thunderball, uh, guess what? Broccoli and Saltzman always got a talent. The director of the underwater scenes was a guy named Rico Browning, and he worked with Ivan Tours. These guys together created Flipper. Rico Browning was the creature from the Black Lagoon underneath that costume. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So to Bond fans listening in that don't like the underwater scenes, this is what I got to say to him. You don't know what you're talking about. That's it. All right. These are the kind Upset? of Easter. Did, did I not back it up? You did. You did. And these are the kind of Easter eggs people will find in your in your webinar. Yes. Behind the scenes and the backstory. It's like I make a, a real-time documentary in the moment. In those two hours, I'm kind of narrating live, not from reading off notes, from just like we're talking now, and I'm showing images and showing film clips in order that take you through the film 
And by the end of the two hours, you'll feel like you've seen the film. And right, yet, right. so and then you can go more. back. You can go back so and watch more. it again. You can go back and watch the film with a new appreciation. Oh, and that's the whole point, which is what art is supposed to be about in general. Make you look at the world freshly in a new way. So, so that's what that's what I try to do with these things. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, Claudine Auger or Auger or uh, as maybe Auger, Auger, right, as one of the weak links. What else about the film didn't you like? Okay, as long as we still do the things I like, because I don't like focusing on the negatives. Of you know what not. I mean? No, but no. I told you, every film has its flaws. It begins with, in my mind, Bond having to put a helmet on while he's on the jetpack, which makes him look like an idiot. Remember when <laughs> Michael cool. Dukakis? Remember when Michael Dukakis went in the tank and put on yes. the helmet? Yes. That killed his whole You're right. political career. Right. Okay. Sorry, and they made because the guys that own Bell Labs that had that made the jetpack that right. lent it for the film, they had a rule that the guy flying it that they needed to be a stuntman had to wear a helmet. Right, because that wasn't special effects. I mean, that was real. That was a real jetpack. Right, the real guy, and they would not let him go up without a helmet. Therefore, they made it a stipulation that they don't want to lead people to believe that a guy can get in a jetpack without a helmet. Right. So they made the filmmakers put a helmet on Connery against rear screen projection, which looks to me totally fake and phony. And I think it makes them so even though I love the jetpack, love the opening sequence, I cringe when he puts on that helmet. Right. It's, it's like a it's, it's like a public service announcement in the yes. middle of the film. Right, right. It's is it right up there with Bond uh slamming the, the Beatles? You know, that's interesting you bring that up. Is it as egregious? You know what? <laughs> Within the context of the film, yeah. It, it to me it really sticks out like a sore thumb that you know he's being chased by gunmen and he's got a jetpack. But he's going to take, you know, those five seconds out to put the helmet on. Right, right. Sorry, I don't buy that. It's not cool. Not cool. Well, and it's not in the, it, 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 it pull, listen, when something bad like that happens in a great sequence, it pulls you out of the continuity of the sequence. You may not even realize it as a layman, but that's what happens. All right. You know, it's like when Hitchcock had that horrible rear projection in Marnie when Connery and Tippi Hedren are on the horses. You know that rear yes. projection? Yes. It's so bad. How does that not take you out of the film? Right, right. That's the uh, problem with rear projection. And the Bond films, because it was the era, you know, each of the first four films has at least one scene of terrible rear projection. Right, right. We got to talk about the ejector seat in the Aston Martin. That is so cool. Yeah, but that's only used in uh, Goldfinger, not Thunderbolt. Isn't it? Don't they use it in Thunderbolt? There's no. no oh my lord! I thought not ejector had... seat. No. Oh, interesting. All right. He doesn't. He doesn't have the car in. Uh, he. I mean, in the very beginning when he drives to Shrublands, the spa. Right. But yeah, the Aston Martin doesn't figure in um, Thunderbolt. Ah. Okay. All right. So. 
then let's talk about um, uh, the villain's uh, the yacht, uh, Disco Volante. Right. That's a pretty cool vessel. Yeah, if that's if that's what floats your boat, pun intended. <laughs> okay. Listen, it was kind of cool when it separates. Yeah. At the end, yeah, but you know, like I said, you know, for me, the film is all about Connery and everything revolves around him. Things like hardware and stuff that might excite other Bond fans. I mean, yeah, the the yacht was cool, but so what? It's a yacht with a uh, you know whatever. Okay, so then let's talk about the sharks. Uh, can we talk about the sharks? How did they, didn't um, uh, Kevin Adam, didn't he like, what did he do with that shark tank? He built it like, a, he had to separate. That wasn't like a rear projection, right? Those sharks were in the same, in the same pool with them. So I think there's one scene in the underwater, the closest Connery get, they put like a plate glass between him and the shark, but you can kind of see it. And then there's a real one of the flaws of Thunderball was the stunt diver for Connery is in a couple of scenes in that sequence that are really noticeable that it's not Connery. And again, when something like that happens, it's jarring. And the feeling I get is they only noticed how bad it was when they got back to Pinewood and it was too expensive to go back to the Bahamas and reshoot footage. Because I can't believe that editor like Peter Hunt and a director like Terrence Young did not look at those scenes and go, oh, my God, you know, we have nothing to cover this. You know, Sean Connery won't agree to go in an underwater tank and film some extra scenes. Who knows? But, you know, they're very noticeable. Right. Um, but, that- yeah, it was cool. This was uh, 10 years before Jaws. And sharks and the mystique of sharks was one of the, you know, cool things about the ocean. You know, the sharks are the villain of the ocean and Largo having his sharks and dropping, you know, his lackey was a cool scene. The other cool scene for me was Largo's yacht exploding. That was at the end. Yeah. 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 Doused it with uh, rocket fuel, I think. Um, So what else did you like? What stands out? So what, what I like about Thunderball is, to me, part of what I love about the early film is the exotic setting. I love the whole, you know, uh, tropical Bahamas, underwater. I like that whole milieu, so to speak. Um, it was also, I guess... Emotionally, for me, on a personal level, it was the first Bond film I saw in the movie theater. When it opened, as a kid, I was seven and a half years old. And I remember lines around the block. You know, I think if you adjusted for inflation, the $1966 of Thunderball that it raked in I think still make it the highest grossing Bond film in proportion. Hmm. That's how big Thunderball was. The buildup after Goldfinger, you know, they had a top Goldfinger. You know, most aficionados consider Goldfinger the best Bond film. Ironically, not directed by Terrence Young, which is where, you know, this this friction for me lies because I maintain that Hamilton was a traffic manager. 
I think stylistically, you can't find any difference in tone in Goldfinger. If you didn't know that another director had directed Goldfinger, you would think, to me, the first four films are of a piece. They have the same style and feel. And even though Ham, I think Hamilton inherited this incredible creative crew, and he really just had to shepherd the movie through. Now, I'm being very hard on Hamilton. I'm based, I don't really know anything about his real career, but I can't think of any great Guy Hamilton film other than Goldfinger. Right. So, you know, I look at Goldfinger and I'm like, you know, he inherited, you know, a, a coach in the NFL like George Seifert, who won, I think, two Super Bowls after Bill Walsh and Joe Montana won two before them. And it was like they, Seifert inherited the same team. Right, right. You know, I think when um, uh, I forget the coach, he left Denver and he left. Um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name. My point is when a when a coach inherits a great team right. and wins a championship, you know, you got to wonder how much of it was him and how much was it the players? Oh, I hear you. I feel the same way about Scotty Bowman with the Montreal Canadiens. Now, he was a great coach because he went on and did that with other teams. But you look at the lineup of the 75 Canadians, they lost six games all year. I could have basically sat on the bench and just opened the gate and so that's let right. Lafleur and Coinway and, you know. <laughs> so Guy Hamilton inherits the entire goal of James Bond creative team. And yeah, I mean, he had to direct it and he did a quote, great job. I just don't see it as any stylistic difference. Mm-hmm. You could tell starting in You Only Live Twice that it's a different director and a whole different feel and style. But you don't feel that way, I don't, at least about Goldfinger. I think it feels like a Terrence Young film. But nevertheless, Hamilton will always have his asterisk because a lot of Bond aficionados consider Goldfinger the best film. But because I did not see that in the theater, I didn't see Goldfinger till it showed up on TV in 1972. Whereas I did see Dr. No at a drive-in when I was five. I saw From Rush With Love in summer camp when I was six. And then I ended up seeing Thunderball in the theater. So for me, Thunderball emotionally, because I saw it at the perfect age on the big screen and Cinerama with a packed audience, emotionally, it's my favorite film, even though... Like I said, I consider the first four films equal in in greatness, but emotionally, Thunderball. And then I think as a kid, I was a sucker for the Big Bang ending with the giant fight underwater. You know, my older brother, Steve, for years after that, was a young artist. He ended up not pursuing it as an adult. But when we were kids, he would draw those underwater scenes his own way for years. Little men fighting on a landscape on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. He would draw men like an inch tall 
with little ray guns and spear guns. And, and right. he was, in a sense, so influenced by those final fight scenes underwater that it fueled his imagination artistically oh, cool. for years. So I think because it had that ending, it felt like a big movie ending, you know? Right. And it's funny, Terrence Young ended up saying, I don't know when he said it years later, when he was looking back at his career, he said, I directed the first one, meaning Dr. No. I directed the best one, which he thought was from Rush With Love, which as you know, a lot of Bond aficionados, it's like the dark horse favorite Bond film right. because it hewed the closest to Fleming's book right? in terms right. of the plot. And then he said, I directed the biggest one, which was Thunderball. The first, the best, and the biggest. And that's the legacy of Terrence Young, who, you know, I maintain in my webinars is as influential on the creation of the Connery Bond character the cinematic version of Bond, as Ian Fleming is his literary creator. I believe Young is 50% of what we love about the Connery Bond, his influence, yeah. So in wrapping up, I want to talk about the theme song. Because I know yes. Goldfinger, Goldfinger is the one that everyone thinks about Again, as the quintessential the, theme song. Yes. But I, I love Thunderball. I love Tom Jones' yes. version of Thunderball. Yes. Uh, originally, though, I, Shirley Bassey was supposed to do it, wasn't she? I don't think so. She had done Goldfinger. Right. I, I thought I'd read something about that. She, and, and she recorded a version, and, and then it turned out it wasn't long enough for the uh, the credit sequence. So then okay. they had to redo it. Or you something. know, this is something I don't know. Um, the great thing about Tom Jones, uh, when he apparently, I don't know if this is true, but he apparently fainted in the studio after delivering that final note. You know that? I don't know whether that's an urban legend or whether yeah. that's the truth, but yeah, I came across that factoid as well that he so held his note at the end. You know, it's funny. Uh, everybody loves Goldfinger, Shirley Bassey. It's the quintessential, yeah. but considering creatively John Barry and company had to follow that up, yeah. You know, how do you follow up Goldfinger? It's like Bruce Springsteen having to follow up Born to Run. Right. And he gives us darkness on the edge of town, which many Springsteen aficionados consider even greater. Right. But to me, Born to Run is the greatest rock and roll album. It's the equivalent of Goldfinger right. by Shirley Bassey. But not only do I happen to love Tom Jones's, I, I mean, I love the song Thunderball. Yeah. I think Thunderball... Considering it had to follow Goldfinger, right? I think it, it again. It holds its own, and I think that's because the lyrics are great. It really is a kind of a flip side of, of Goldfinger because it's almost the same thing. You know, Goldfinger. The lyrics are pretty much about Goldfinger, which is why. And I think you'll find this interesting, Richard. Do you know for years, decades? I think it was only when I started to do these webinars. I always thought the lyrics of Thunderball were about the villain. Right. Because yeah. Goldfinger was about the villain. Sure. It only dawned on me relatively recently that the lyrics are about Bond. Mr. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. Yeah, but that's not a lyric in Thunderball. No, 
but um, wasn't that? The, but I'm the, saying when you yeah. look at the when you look at the lyrics to Thunderball, yeah, they it's could a, as easily be about the villain, yes, Largo, as much as they could be about Bond. And because I was in the mindset that the song Goldfinger was about Goldfinger, right? For decades, I thought the lyrics of Thunderball. He always runs while others walk. You know, although they could easily be applied to the villain. Now, Bond is the man in black who kills. He's the anti-hero. He's the first pop culture, you know, the hero that kills. He's the guy in black, but he's the good guy. So the fact that the lyrics in Thunderball can be easily applied to the villain as much as Bond, and he strikes like Thunderball? Yeah. Why can't that be Largo? Right, right. Interesting, interesting. So did, did you always think it was about Bond? Well, I had read that the original title was, because I just mentioned Mr. Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bang. So, um, you know, who's, who's the guy that kisses and, you know. Well, obviously, shoots. because that was, I think, the, Originally, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was what the Japanese called Bond or something. Ah, okay. And then Leslie Bercuse or the, the lyric writer, whoever wrote the lyrics, uh, Don Black, I think, for Thunderball or something right. like that. Um, I re- and I read they had to cobble that together in a hurry. Uh, so, you know, kudos to them. for. Yeah, yeah. See, these are the details I don't uh, concentrate on that, that you bring up. But yeah, I mean, the Bond films are fascinating for their wealth of trivial detail, you know? So give us the details on the webinar again that is happening Wednesday, June 23rd. Yes, is, at is six, it a- it's 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and then, like I said, when you, if you're a Facebook, if you're on Facebook, I post on all my social media. I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Tumblr, I'm on Twitter. So, excuse me, at least a few days before the event, I post all over social media, on LinkedIn, but I always post on my events blog at arlenschumer.com. And then you'll find the Zoom meeting, the passcode, whatever else you need to get in at six o'clock Eastern Standard Time. And again, if you miss it live, you can go back and couple watch. weeks. Yeah, a couple, couple weeks, weeks later, later, I end up posting it on my YouTube channel and my and or my Vimeo channel. And again, I post the fact that they're there on my social media. So it's not that difficult to find me because, again, just use the name Arlen Schumer wherever you're searching and you'll find me. But ArlenSchumer.com is my you know, all encompassing website. And again, the details, if they go to the podcast notes for this episode, click on Arlen's name, that'll take you right to the website and all the details will be in the notes as well. All right, Arlen. Boy, I can't believe, I feel like we barely scratched the film. I feel like we, there's still so much we could have talked about. We could have done a part two. Well, we got to leave people wanting more, right? That's, I mean, I didn't talk, I didn't talk about the great, uh, concept in the opening sequence of him having a fight with a guy dressed in drag. I mean, how ahead of its time is that? That's true. Yes. Well, they I'm can just telling all- you, we barely talked about anything more than the jetpack. I'm kidding. 
That's all right. People will will get all of the uh, the gold when they watch the webinar. Arlen, you thank you it. so much. Thanks, well, Richard, for having me on. My pleasure. Bye bye. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.